Our scripture reading is uh, Luke 10, we're reading verses 25 through 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord with all your God, with Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly, do this and you shall live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was, the, was neighbor to him, to him who fell amongst the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Leave your Bible open, please, to uh, Luke chapter 10 right there, and we will be working out of the parable of what we call the Good Samaritan. Let me say a word, just a moment. Uh, I am humbled and I am overwhelmed by the work of individuals here in this congregation. Sometimes you put a call for help and a call for, uh, for uh, needing some things done, and sometimes that call comes back empty. But uh, the ladies especially of this congregation have answered, and they have answered well. Um, if you get a chance, go poke your head in what's uh, our annex, our fellowship area, because uh, the, the call that I put out of Wednesday night needing some help for Bible boot camp and getting things decorated has been answered, and uh, the ladies have been up here working tirelessly, and what... We usually do, as far as Vacation Bible School goes, it usually takes months, weeks uh, in order to get done, and these ladies have had days, and they have done a tremendous job. So if you are a part of that number, thank you, thank you, a thousand times thank you. I am in your debt deeply, and I am humbled, I am overwhelmed by your generosity, and I know that that's going to add to the success and the uh, encouragement of these young people as they learn God's Word. Most all of you, if you are grade school uh, age, should have received your draft notice this past week. You have been drafted into the Lord's Army. Uh, Mr. Troy and I are going to be teaching you on Wednesday evenings. I hope that you're going to make it a point to come, and I hope that you're going to make it a point to bring your friends. You're going to have a great time, I know, and learn a lot about God's Word. We do have classes for all ages on Wednesday nights, so if you have friends, if you have uh, family members that have been lamenting because they haven't been able to gather with whatever they go, or if they uh, are looking for something to get involved with, please Take one of the cards that's out there on the table as you exit and uh, go and deliver those to friends and neighbors and let's, as much as we can, pack the building with people that are desirous to hear God's word and desirous to grow the way he wants us to. Following Jesus ought to make us better people. That's just the truth of the matter. It ought to make us better people by listening to Jesus. Uh, 
James would say in James chapter 1 and verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. We've sung a couple of songs this morning that have stood out to me, how we stand in awe of God. If that's true, that ought to change us. If we truly stand in awe of God, it ought to change our behavior and the way we relate to other people. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. If we truly appreciate the Savior's love for us and what he's done, that ought to change our behavior That ought to change the way we look at other people and the way that we relate to them. When you get to Luke chapter 10, you find probably one of the most well-known parables that Jesus ever told. And remember, we've talked about parables before, but when you're looking to a parable, you're looking to a mirror so that you can see yourself the way that God sees you. Every parable of Jesus is, a, is, a, is an opportunity for us to see ourselves the way God sees us. And what the main point of uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following is the question that we have to deal with about answering, who is really my neighbor? You see, nations, cultures, ages, we're all going to have to deal with this question Who is my neighbor? As individuals, who is my neighbor? I have an individual sphere of influence. We as the church have a collective sphere of influence. How do we treat those people that God has created in his own image? Has Jesus, in us standing amazed in his presence, made a difference in how we treat other people? We're looking this morning at, again, what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus never uses those two words together. We couldn't rightly call this parable the parable of the neighborly Samaritan or the parable of the compassionate Samaritan. All of those things are absolutely true. And because this parable is never given a formal title, we just use it as Good Samaritan. We have on our books in our country in certain places, Good Samaritan laws. It's sad that we have to put things like that into place because, uh, well, you might wonder if I get involved sacrificially in somebody else's life when they need help, Could they turn around and sue me for that aid that I rendered to them? It's not about that. It's about understanding this fundamental question of who is my neighbor. There are truths, as we begin, that we need to come to grips with. In the fact that, number one, we all identify at certain times with that certain man that went from Jerusalem to Jericho, the one who fell among the thieves. That is, that we all have need for help sometimes in our lives. Isn't that true? That we are all the ones that are bloodied and and broken on the side of the road. But the second truth we need to come to grips with is we are all travelers on that same road and we see sometimes people that are in bad and desperate need for some kind of aid and some kind of help. Has Jesus made a difference in our lives? I want to just take us through the text this morning. You'll find that there are just three simple points, and that is you have the purpose for the parable, you have the plot of the parable or the parable itself, and then you have the principle of the parable, which we'll talk about at the very end. Those three simple points 
But as we go through the text, what I'm going to do is I'm going to highlight certain things and hopefully connect the dots. You may want to just take casual notes in your Bible, or you may want to, uh, as you get home, take different colors and mark some of these things kind of the way that I've done. I don't know why it is, but uh, I noticed that uh, the, the feed that's going across the live stream may not necessarily have color that's involved. So for those of you that are watching and saying, well, that doesn't look like it has color, um, well, I'll be sure and try and call out the colors as best I can, but... In all honesty, I'm colorblind, so I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> this may be as confusing as it is helpful, so there you are. Let's start out by talking about the purpose of the parable. The purpose of the parable. First two verses, verse 25 and 26. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and, note the word, I'm marking it in red, tested him. Already Luke, by inspiration, gives us an understanding that this lawyer's motives are not genuine. What he's doing is he's trying to work Jesus into a corner and he's trying to, well, King James Version says, tempt him. The question he's asking is not from a sincere heart. The question he's asking is not from a pure motive. He is trying to trap Jesus. But notice this question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to, and he frames this question around, have eternal life. This is in green. We want to be concerned with what's Uh, what's about eternal life. And Jesus turns it around. He doesn't answer his question, but he gives him a question to consider. What is written in the law? What is your understanding of it? Let's stop here just for a moment and make this observation. Brothers and sisters, you can understand the word of God. There are a lot of people that look at it and they say it's a mystery, it's too deep, there's nothing that, that, uh, that's there that makes any sense. That is not true. What it does require is a heart that's, that's, that's going to pursue that knowledge, a heart that's going to search for that knowledge and understand that Jesus says you can, will know the truth and the truth will set you free, John 8 verse 32. We can understand the word of God, but note this number two as we drop this off as we're flying over. You can learn what to do to have eternal life from the Word of God. Granted, there are some things that are difficult to understand about Scripture. But Jesus and his message of salvation and how that appeals to all mankind is not one of them. When we look into the Word of God, we can understand it and we can appeal to the right authority. That is the Word of God, the law, the, the, the right method of reading and applications of these things that we, uh, that we know. And Jesus says, you do those things, you will live. Understand this, next two verses. So he, that is the lawyer, answered and said, here's the answer. This is my understanding of what the Word of God says about inheriting eternal life. I'm going to highlight this in blue. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When he reads the word of God to understand what he needs to do to have eternal life, this lawyer says, I understand there's duty that I have to God to love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I also understand, Jesus, that in order to inherit eternal life, I also have a responsibility to my neighbor to love him as myself. So to inherit eternal life, I have a duty to God, and I have a duty to my individual, to my fellow man, in loving him as myself. And what does Jesus say? He said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and here's the green, 
Eternal life, that's what you're interested in. You do these things, you will live. He connects loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself, and says this is your responsibility. You want that eternal life, you're going to do those things. The parable's not over. The story's not over. The account's not over. The lawyer is not done yet. (laughs) But he wanting to, here's our red highlight, justify himself. He's already been trying to trap Jesus. He's already done this out of insincere motives, but now he's wanting to justify himself with regard to his beliefs and his practices. We like to do this sometimes, don't we? Well, Jesus, didn't you say? Well, how do you define the term neighbor? Because neighbor could mean a lot of different things. Neighbor could mean the guy that I have that's living next door or across the street. Neighbor could mean the man that I encounter at the grocery store. How do you define the term neighbor, Jesus? I want to know because I want to be right in my assessment of who I think is my neighbor. I want to be right with with regard to how I treat certain people and not treat other certain people. So we ask the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus, how exactly do I apply what I've just said, love your neighbor as yourself, in wanting to inherit eternal life? How do I apply that neighborly attitude across the board? Jesus, is it certain people that I can exclude from that neighbor definition? How can I justify myself? I was an educator briefly, about two years. I taught middle school. But in preparation for that, I had to study a whole lot of educational theory in college. And one of the things that astounded me was that they said, as much as possible, if you as a teacher can make your teaching to where it's, well, what they would call discovery learning, to where you're not giving the child the answer themselves, but you're allowing a situation where they can put themselves in the shoes of the person that's going to have to solve this problem, and they can learn this for themselves, discover it, have the light bulb moment for themselves. They said that's far, far more effective, and it will stick with somebody for far, far longer than it will if Jesus had just said, well, the neighbor is the person that's dead and stranded on the side of the road. Well, then your neighbor is the person that's, that's mourning a loss of a loved one. Well, your neighbor is this person that that maybe you don't think too much of. If Jesus had just given him that answer, do you suppose the story, the account, the parable of the neighborly Samaritan would be as popular as it is and well-known as it is? The fact that we can look at it here now 2,000 years removed from where Jesus was and see and still discover with what this lawyer discovers is a testimony to Jesus, the master teacher, and realizing that he allowed this man to put himself in those shoes of those people that were there on this occasion. Jesus allows this man to discover and discover for himself the answer, and that meant more to the learning. The application for this is easy, but the principle is timeless. Let's look at the plot. Let's look at the parable itself. Jesus said, answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed him, leaving half dead. I'm highlighting this one in yellow because it's the first of our main characters here in this parable. What does it mean? Who is this certain man? To be honest, his identity is really irrelevant. The identity is not important to the story. 
It doesn't say Jesus said a certain rich man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It doesn't say that he was poor. It doesn't say he was well-connected. It doesn't say he was good-looking. It doesn't give us the color of his skin. It doesn't tell us whether he was Jewish or Gentile. Jesus doesn't give us any information about this man to help us determine and make a broad-sweeping application to say, aha, that includes just the Jewish people. Aha, that includes just the Gentile people. Aha, that only includes the rich and the well-connected people. He's just a certain man. He has no other identifying characteristics other than the fact that he is just a certain man. He fell among these thieves. Second yellow. This man falls among these unsavory characters. Again, there's no details given except what they did to this man. He fell among these people who stripped him of his clothing, who wounded him and departed him from him, leaving him half dead. Now we have the setup. Now we have a situation into which we're going to insert three key people. The very first one, now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Note this before we talk about the priest. By chance. I don't know in God's providence, and you don't either, why it is that we have certain people that come into our lives at certain times. Why it is that we see certain people, as it were, standing on the side of the road or stranded on the side of the road. Or why it is that we have neighbors that come across and open up and reveal certain things about what they're going through and what their struggles are to us. Or why it is that that lady or that man at the checkout begins to uh, talk to, to us about their problems and their difficulties and their despair and how they're worried about their children or how they're worried about uh, the economy or how they're worried about all the distressing things that are going on in our world. I don't know why, except to say, just as Jesus says, chance. But as those chances come to us, as we with eyes of wisdom begin to look at them, we have also the opportunity to do something about that because chance brings opportunity. Chance gives us the opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life. Here is a certain priest. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Perhaps this lawyer thinking in his mind kind of probably like we do, Here's a man who his job is to serve at the temple, to offer sacrifices for people, to stand as a mediator between God and man, to, to offer atonement for people. And if this man had helped this guy, he doesn't know whether he's dead or not. If he had touched him, he would have defiled himself as a priest and he would be unfit to serve. But the truth is, this priest left a man half dead on the side of the road on his way to worship. The truth is, this man passed by on the other side when somebody that he had a chance to love as his neighbor, as himself, lied there, was lying there in the, the ditch, bleeding and half dead. The truth was that he buried himself, buried his head, and no matter what he was thinking about with regard to this man when he saw him, the truth was that he left that man there half dead. When we look for excuses, brothers and sisters, and the chances and the opportunities that come to us, you can be sure that we're going to find them. Second character, likewise a Levite, not a priest, but of the same tribe, perhaps another one, but here's a person who, well, part of their job in the priest and Levites was to educate the people on the word of God. 
was to educate the people in what God commanded and how he wanted the people to live. And you talk about two people that were as near as somebody could be to the word of God and studying it and applying it and and thinking about the ways God wanted us to behave. He couldn't get much closer than the priest and the Levite. But here's a Levite. And notice the similar phrasing between verses 31 and 32. The King James, New King James Version, which you're looking at here on the screen, indicates that this Levi spent just a little bit more time examining him. Maybe he walks over to the side and just kind of goes, well, we've got a term for those people, don't we? Accident on 59, and you're wondering why it's taking forever to get through. It's because of rubberneckers. I want to see what it's all about. I want to see how bad the carnage is. I want to see uh, how many ambulances, how many fire trucks are there. And we spend more time looking than we do thinking about the people that are involved in those accidents. Rubberneckers, not helping, just there to see the carnage. Verse 33, but contrast, a certain Samaritan As he journeyed, came where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. Brothers and sisters, a good study to do is to go through the life and teaching of Jesus. And look at how many times Jesus used Samaritans or Gentiles or uh, people that the Jews would have not had much regard for. And see how many times Jesus used those people as his heroes in the stories he told and the parables that he told. Peoples that the Jews wouldn't have had any regard for, Jesus is the one that takes these people and makes them the main character and, in fact, the only one that does what's right in God's eyes with regard to, well, in this case, neighbor. Here is the difference between verses 31, 32, and 33. I'm going to highlight again in blue. This man, when he saw him, circling in your Bible, he had compassion. By chance... This Samaritan comes down the road. By chance, he sees this man lying here in the ditch, and every single one of these guys saw him, but the difference was, here's a man who has compassion for this person. And compassion, brothers and sisters, makes all the difference. Compassion is simply a word that means to be moved with love and pity, to be affected deeply by something that you see or by something that is is happening around you. When you go through the book of Luke, look at how many times it talks about Jesus as being a man of compassion. When he saw the multitude scattered as sheep without a shepherd, he felt compassion. He felt deeply for them. And he thought about what he might do to try and help them. Let's stop here just for a moment. Another thing we can drop off as we're flying over. Compassion is a fundamental quality, brothers and sisters, that separates us from animals. Compassion is something that separates us from the animal world. Our kids, if they are publicly educated, we, if we were publicly educated, we were probably taught something about Darwinism, about survival of the fittest, natural selection, how nature has a tendency to weed out the weak and the sickly, the ones who can't cope the ones who can't hold on, and the ones who can't uh, compete with the big boys. If we're in this survival of fittest mindset, 
And we're looking here at the parable of the Good Samaritan. We would just simply, maybe with the priest and Levite, look at this person and say, well, that's just survival of the fittest. That's, uh, that's the, the way that things go. There's no room for sparing the weak. This man who fell among thieves, he's in the process of evolution, and evolution is weeding out the weak, and they're weeding out the sickly and the inferior. I'm not going to do anything about that because I'm just prolonging this man's misery in this life. That's a sick thinking. That's a sick way of thinking. Because, brothers and sisters, what God has put in us in the eternal and being created in his image and looking at ourselves is realizing that we could be that man. Can you imagine it from his perspective and his mindset that if he were there lying in that ditch, hoping, praying, pleading for somebody to come and help him, somebody to reach out a helping hand to him, somebody to give him something to ease his suffering, and somebody to show him compassion, can you imagine feeling that that's what you want somebody to do to you? And so this Samaritan, this unlikely character that Jesus has picked as his hero for this parable, he shows compassion, and compassion, I count six different characteristics here in these next couple of verses that he does in acting on what he feels. What does compassion look like? Number one, compassion is going to go and it's going to do. Compassion's going to go and it's going to do. Luke 10, verse 34, so he went to him. If I can be completely honest, when we're trying to apply this, this is probably the hardest step. This is probably the hardest battle where the thoughts are trying to crowd out the actions. Where we're trying to justify ourselves and thinking about this person that needs help that is coming along by chance in our lives. And we're thinking about them or going, well, I'm on my way to go do something else. Well, this person might have somebody that will come along and, and help them a lot better than I will. Well, you know, I did help that person yesterday. Well, you know, I don't really have the time for that. When, if we're feeling, and if we're following Jesus, and he's made a difference in our lives, the going and the doing is absolutely necessary. And if we would just get the courage to take the first step, if we would just silence those fears and those doubts and those justifications that are coming into our minds to just go and do, I think you'd find the rest of it comes a whole lot easier. The hardest battle sometimes is fought in just stopping and going compassion goes and does it's not enough brothers and sisters just to be moved with love and pity for somebody <laughs> oh that's too bad oh that's a shame bless his heart and then move on down the road faith james would say is not faith that does not do let me revise that faith is dead that does not do how can a man say he has faith but doesn't have works of obedience to go and back up that faith? That's the entirety of the discussion there in James chapter 2, verse 14 and following. In fact, Jesus, or sorry, James would start off with an application to say, uh, how in the world can you look at a brother and sister who's naked and in need of daily food and say, go, to, go, and, go, and be, uh, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you haven't given them the things that are needed for the body? Compassion. True 
compassion is going to go and it's going to do. Number two, compassion is going to deal with needs. It's going to deal with immediate needs. This Samaritan came, he saw him, he went to him, and he bandaged his, let me give you the Greek word, trauma. Trauma. Sounds just like a word that a lot of our ER doctors and nurses deal with when they immediately have somebody wheeling into the emergency room. They call them trauma doctors and trauma nurses and trauma patients. Somebody that deals with a head trauma. The worst of his wounds this man is going to deal with. The first thing he sees is maybe the gash in his head or, or, or that broken arm. And he's going to try and deal with that and try and take care of that in a way that's going to make a difference. These thieves did a number on this person. They left him there in that ditch half dead. True, curse to me that they could have made him all dead. They stopped it halfway. But the man he deal, that comes along, he deals with this, with the trauma, with the worst of the blows, the immediately needful that Samaritan took care of. Compassion deals with the urgent, the immediate needs and the wounds. Number three, characteristic number three of what compassion does, compassion is giving. He poured on him oil and wine. We stop and we say, well, wait a minute, why did he have those things? The Samaritan simply cared for the man with what he had available. And what he had available, he freely gave to this man. doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say why he had these things on him. That's irrelevant. It doesn't say how much more of these things he had sitting there on his animal. It does, that's irrelevant. Most likely, he wasn't like I have in the back of my car, stranded on the side of the road kit with road flares and emergency blanket and jumper cables and all those things. It wasn't for this purpose. <laughs> Most likely, he had purposed that oil and wine for something else. But instead, he takes it and he uses it. He shares it. And what does it cost? How much is it worth, the oil and the wine? Again, irrelevant. Compassion doesn't care. Compassion gives. Number four, compassion is inconvenient. Samaritan pours on him oil and wine, he sets him on his own animal. Nothing said about where this man was from, where he was going. Nothing said about what his, the length of his journey was or where he came from. All those things are irrelevant. When he set him on his own animal, that probably means the Samaritan walked. Compassion. I give the care. I give the preference I give the concern and the convenience to somebody else. Compassion is often inconvenient. Number five, compassion is time-consuming. He brought him to an end. We don't know. Was he making for this end or not? Maybe, maybe not. That's irrelevant. The Samaritan then takes this man. He spends the night with this man, taking care of him. Bible doesn't say how they took care of him. I get the picture of him kind of like a nurse uh, dabbing the sponge on this man's head and, and trying to nurse and change the wounds and the dressings and things like that. I don't know what he did. I don't know if it uh, if manifested itself in a tourniquet or a suture or a splint for his broken bones. But I think about the fact that sometimes when you're sacrificially involved with the life of somebody else, it's going to be time-consuming. When you're sitting down at the tire shop with somebody that needs your help, when you're sitting a time in a hospital with somebody that you have tried to help and you're compassionately helping, 
When you sit in, in somebody's house and listen to them and the woes and the difficulties that they've experienced and the hurt and the trauma that they've endured physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, you're talking about something that's time consuming. Oh, brothers and sisters, for Americans that live and die by the clock, we don't like to think about that. That I could be spending my time doing something else. That I could be spending my time making money. Spending time with kids. I could be spending my time doing something else. Could you be doing those other things? Absolutely. What's the difference? The difference is here's somebody that needs help and they don't have anybody Woven all throughout this, and this last characteristic, I would say, is probably all-encompassing of these other five that we've listed. Compassion is sacrificial. Compassion is sacrificial. Verse 35, on the next day, he's already spent a night here at this inn. When he departed, he took out two denarii, the New King James says. That's a day's wage. Two days' wage. He gives them to the innkeeper, and he says, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. Now, my financial, fiscally-oriented mind begins to think, what kind of financial loss was that? Is that really a financially sound decision? Is that really something to think? <laughs> Mr. Innkeeper, could you not? Do you have a, a better rate? You have a little broom closet you could stick him in? Could he just sleep out here in the lobby on the, on the, on the couch here in the Motel 6? Is there, is there, how, how about this? How about you just tell me, well, you're completely booked through the weekend. All right, so there's no room at the inn. Could you say that so that I won't have to spend as much money? Two days wage. Two days wage. It's irrelevant how much this man made, the Samaritan. Two days' wage was likely a very significant loss. I kind of wonder what the conversation might have been if he had had a wife and when he got home. Honey, you're late. Where you been? Oh, there was a guy that I, I tried to help on the side of the road, and, and I, I, left there, uh, uh, <laughs> I left there two days' wage uh, so that the innkeeper... Wait, you, did, you left how much? You did what? Don't you realize that we had that money purpose for something else? Wait, you're going to go back? And see if there's anything else that this man charged on his hotel room or his motel room. You're going to go back to the inn and go and see if he's, he's still there or if he owes anything on his bill. This point also occurred to me. People of compassion, you're going to find, are people that are often full of integrity. People that are full of character. And that are going to do the right thing because that's the right thing to do. When Jesus talks about, we summarize the golden rule, Matthew seven twelve: whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. It's looking at somebody with the eyes of compassion and realize sacrifice means I'm looking with the good of another person. The word sacrifice means simply to devote with loss, giving up something for or on behalf of somebody else. And we look at all the things here highlighted in green that this Samaritan man gave up for this person who needed help. He lost time. He lost money. He lost possessions. He lost activity. He lost energy. Another important lesson I think we can draw from this is 
we don't find the Samaritan man anywhere hanging his hat on this good deed. You do something good. We do something good. And there's a temptation in us sometimes that wants to go and tell other people about it. Man, I would have been there sooner except I saw this guy lying here on the side of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And, you know, I just had to do something. Oh, you're such a good person. I know. I know. That's, it's, our, it's not about that. It's not, no, it's not about that. All the while, patting yourself on the back. We've got more subtle message. We, we call it humble bragging. Sometimes people posting on social media the great things that they've done or, or wanting people to note how, how, how spiritually they've behaved. This Samaritan we don't read anywhere that was humble bragging. He wasn't looking for an opportunity to glory in this. Maybe he better than a lot of us understood the Proverbs Verse, chapter 19, verse 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord and he will pay back what he has given. Quickly now, as we conclude, let's look at the principle number three. What's the conclusion, Jesus? Here's this question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among thieves? Think about the guys that we highlighted in yellow. We've got the priest, we've got the Levite, we've got the Samaritan. Which one of these best fulfilled this commandment or this, this thought about who is my neighbor? Who was the one that loved his neighbor as himself? Remember the original question the lawyer asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor. Who's the neighbor? Who's the one that actually behaved neighborly? The one in need is obviously the neighbor. Now, who do you think, Mr. Lawyer, was the one who was actually the neighbor of the one who fell among thieves. And note how he refers to him. Jewish lawyer, you kind of get the picture he's got a catch in his throat where he can't even bring himself to form the words and say, the Samaritan. Tastes like bile. And so he simply says, the one who showed compassion. As Jesus concludes this, he says, go and do likewise. Link these things in your Bible, please. Verse 36, compassion. Back to verse 33, compassion. Back to verse 29, who is my neighbor? This lawyer equaled being neighborly to being the one who showed compassion, who showed mercy. He links this all the way back to verse 25, and that's why we've got it all the way back here at Green, the very last statement. Because here's the thing. When we want to have eternal life, it's going to require a duty to God, but it's also going to have a duty to mankind, to our fellow man, in being neighborly, in loving our neighbor as ourselves. And two times in this context, verse 26 and verse 36, Jesus asked the question, what do you think? Who do you think? And as he asked that question, you want to have a love for God and a love for neighbor. You want to have eternal life. Both of those things are necessary. And love your neighbor like the Samaritan did. Please note in your parable... This lawyer gave all the right answers, didn't he? This lawyer knew 
the right answers. Even though it was from a heart that was not asking for the right motives, he came to the right conclusion at the beginning and at the very end. But if his heart had been right, we wouldn't have had the parable of the neighborly Samaritan at all. If he had truly known how to practice being neighborly, we would never have had this parable. The difference was what he had now is that he had an opportunity to change his life and change his perspective with how he saw who his neighbor was. Likewise, for the church, so too we can give all the right answers. Baptism, compassion, love, joy, peace, no mechanical instruments of music. But we can fail in matters of practice in loving our neighbors as ourselves. We have every day chances, opportunities to change our lives. We have chances, opportunities to change somebody else's life and make a difference by showing the compassion of Jesus. How have we loved our neighbor as ourselves? How have we made an example and a difference in the immediate sphere of influence that we have? Have we changed somebody's life for the better? Because we're faithfully following Jesus. All the way back to the very beginning of what we said. Following Jesus faithfully means it's going to make us better people. It's going to make us think about things differently and behave differently. And so when we talk about our country and the difficulties that we face... I know communities, neighborhoods, are probably closer than what they have been before. How have we made a difference in the lives of our neighbors who, well, Ephesians 2 would say, are dead? Not half dead, not like this man, but are completely dead. You he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the, prince of the, uh, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were all once dead. You know what Jesus did? He showed his compassion. You know what the person who taught you the gospel did? He showed you compassion. He saw you dead in your sins and said, here's a person who can be made alive. You know what it cost them? It cost them time. It cost them effort. It cost them energy. It cost them sacrifice, just like that Samaritan, to teach somebody the gospel, to teach somebody how God wants them to respond and behave, to bandage that person's wound, or better yet, to take them to the great physician to show them how he can bandage their wounds and how he can make a difference. Practically speaking, brothers and sisters, we have got to have the eyes to see the chances that come along in our lives. But what we've got to pray for and what we've got to think about is the boldness to make a choice to get sacrificially involved in a person's life like the Samaritan did. That's going to be the difference between somebody who just loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, or says they do, and somebody who's going to put that into practice by loving their neighbor as themselves. We would do no better than to finish the way Jesus did. With the last words he speaks to this lawyer that we have record of, go, do likewise. If you're interested in eternal life, go and make a difference. Please understand, if we're talking about meeting somebody's soul's deepest need, and needing a Savior because sin has done a number on that person. You're talking about a person that you're going to try to have to help with what you've got. Can I say this just 
from me to you, you do not have to be a biblical scholar in order to help somebody to come to know what, who Christ is. Please understand, I do believe that we do have to be doctrine. We do have to have an understanding of how the gospel works and how it's able to save a person. But it doesn't mean that I need to have the Bible memorized or, or be a walking Bible in order to help that person. I can help them with what I have, no matter if I've been a new Christian like Daniel over here or a Christian for 50, 60, 70 years. I can help that person with what I've got. What have I got? Maybe just an invitation. Maybe saying, come, worship with me. Come, learn about Jesus. Let us help you because you have compassion for that person. Has Jesus made a difference in your life? He can. He can. Go, church, and do likewise. If you are not a Christian this morning, we want you to be more than anything. The Lord wants you to be more than anything. Truth is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins, but Jesus is the one that can make you alive. And by coming to him in faith, Romans 10, 17, by believing in him and understanding that he is the sacrifice for your sins, he is God's one solution to the problem of sin, that you don't have to bear that guilt anymore, that you don't have to bear that weight anymore, that you don't have to remain dead in your trespasses and sins, but you can be made alive spiritually, that you can be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2. You can have that. But it involves giving your life to Jesus, putting your trust in him, confessing him as Lord and Savior, Romans 10, 9 and 10. With the mouth, one mouth is, uh, uh, is made to confession, or confession is made to salvation. It involves New Testament water baptism, being immersed into water where human obedience meets with God's grace and that old man of sin is washed away and you're raised to walk in newness of life. You can have a remedy for your sin if you would but just come. For the rest of us, go be people who love our neighbors and ourselves. Let's stand and sing.